Hello everyone, this is Andre, the co-founder of Twins Tours and Travel in Jerusalem in Israel, born into a Christian Maronite family, and I'm a licensed tour guide and an ordained minister of the gospel. I have been leading numerous groups throughout the Holy Land for almost 20 years. Also, I'm an author of several books, and you can find them in Amazon. And one of the first books I wrote called One Friday in Jerusalem speaks about my life story. So join me for a journey of 10 days to understand the heart and the mind of Jesus and to understand the Bible in a deeper way with more details through the Middle Eastern perspective. Please share this podcast with your friends and families and churches and connect with me if you have any questions. Hello everyone, this is day number 8 and the group are all in Mount Zion inside the upper room and then after that we're gonna walk to the garden of gethsemane and then from the garden of gethsemane we're gonna walk back through the kidron valley to the house of caiaphas the high priest and we're gonna learn together today about day number five of the last week of jesus in jerusalem where he had the last supper with the disciples and he went all the way to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray and then betrayed by Judas and took to the house of Caiaphas for the trial. And this is when Peter denied him three times. So we're going to learn about that in the context of the first century culture. All the group members are seated inside the upper room and I will give you a little bit background of the historical importance of the upper room. By the way, if you look around you, you see that this room is from the 12th century AD. And this room is from the Crusader time. And it's not from the time of Jesus. Because we know that Jerusalem was destroyed completely at 70 AD. So the upper room itself will not exist today. The foundations and the surrounding area show that this was a two or three story building. And we have a record from Epiphanus of Salamis that Emperor Hadrian in the second century coming to tour Jerusalem found the whole city raised to the ground Epiphanus, the early church father, is referring here to 130 AD. Because of the persecution of the Christians, no new churches would have been built. We have records also from the 4th century AD, during the Byzantine period, the tradition locates the Pentecost took place in the upper room. And by the 5th century, it was thought that this was the location of the Last Supper and the upper room discourse. The connection between these two events is that they both took place in the same location. It is at least possible that a major event took place here, the Last Supper or Pentecost, which would have caused the early Christians to meet here in this location. So this is what we call a strong tradition site. There is no cut in history about the specific location from the 2nd century AD till the 12th century till today. So from the early Christians 
till today there is a continuation of documents of people of bishops of early church father mentioning that this is the location of the pentecost or the last supper or the passover meal so this is a strong strong tradition location while a weak tradition there is a cut in history a weak tradition is when we don't have enough information throughout history from the second century, first century till today. An example of a weak tradition is the tomb of David below this room. The concept that King David is buried on Mount Zion developed over a period of a short history in the Middle Ages. The first mention of Mount Zion as King David's final resting place was in the 12th century. The Jewish traveler Benjamin of Tudela from Spain related that during his stay in Jerusalem he heard a story regarding the rediscovery of King David's tomb. The story says that two Jewish workers employed by the Christian patriarch to reconstruct a damaged monument on Mount Zion accidentally happened upon a secret passage and found they found themselves in a palace made of marble columns. Within the palace was a table upon which rested a golden scepter and golden crown, with riches all around. The workers decided this was King David's tomb. And by the way, that was all crusader. So the palace, these two men were inside a crusader fortress. And suddenly they were struck down by a fierce wind and heard voices that told them to leave immediately. Three days later, the two workmen were sick in bed and could not be persuaded to return to the site. Crusaders erected a Gothic empty sarcophagus to mark the site, which remains until today. So King David tomb should be, should be in Bethlehem. King David and his father Jesse were from Bethlehem, born in Bethlehem. Usually you bury kings the location where they were born. And there was an early tradition that the King David and Jesse tomb was in Bethlehem. There's another tradition that the original tomb is at the city of David and that King David is buried there. So there are so many traditions. The point I want to make, this is a weak tradition that King David is buried on Mount Zion. That was some archaeological background, but let us go back to the point where we are here to learn about day number five, the last week of Jesus in Jerusalem. It was Thursday. Imagine with me. It's Thursday, April 2, 33 AD. This was the first day of the Passover holiday. It was supposed to be the day that they had a special meal called the Feast of Unleavened Bread or what we know by the Passover meal. And Jesus probably spent the day teaching and praying in the morning. And he had sent the disciples to borrow a place, a room in the city. Let us read from Matthew 26, 17 to 19. On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples approached Jesus and said, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city, 
to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time draws near in your house. I shall celebrate the Passover with my disciples. The disciples then did as Jesus had ordered and prepared the Passover. So we see here at Jesus' direction, Peter and John have already arrived in Jerusalem to prepare for the Passover meal. And I want to tell you this preparation for the Passover takes a lot of time. And imagine with me, it's now in the afternoon and the sun is sinking in the west as Jesus and his disciples descend from the Mount of Olives heading to the upper room through the Kidron Valley. This is Jesus's last daytime view from the mountain until after his resurrection. So imagine with me, Jesus and his disciples leaving the area of the Mount of Olives, walking through the Kidron Valley to the upper room where they will have the Passover meal together. So they climb the stairs, all the way up to the room there they find that all preparations have been made for their private meal jesus has looked forward to this occasion look what is written in luke 22:15. i have greatly desired to eat this passover with you before i suffer and by the way this is a hint about his crucifixion and no one took attention about it and you have to understand the Passover meal takes a lot of time. It can be around four hours meal because they don't only eat. They pray, they, they eat, then they pray again. Then So it's a long, long, long meal. And at one point during the meal, something unusual happens. Jesus gets up, sets aside his outer garments and picks up a towel. Then he puts water in a basin that is nearby him and started to wash the feet of his disciples. By the way, any of the disciples could have taken the opportunity to do it, but not one of them does. It is because some opposition still exists probably among them. Whatever the case, they are embarrassed to have Jesus wash their feet. When Jesus comes to Peter, Peter protests. Look what he says. You will certainly never wash my feet. Look what Jesus replies. Unless I wash you, you have no share with me. Peter responds with a feeling. Lord, wash not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. How surprised he must be. Then Jesus answers, says, Whoever has bath does not need to have more than his feet washed, but is completely clean. And you men are clean, but not all of you. By the way, this is another hint that Jesus will be surrendered to the Romans and crucified and being betrayed. When he said, and you men are clean, but not all of you. Jesus now washes the feet of all the twelve, including the feet of Judas Iscariot. After putting his outer garments on and reclining at the table again, look what Jesus asks. Let me read for you from John 13, 12-17. Do you understand what I have done to you? You address me as teacher and Lord, and you are correct, for I am such. 
Therefore, if I, the Lord and teacher, washed your feet, you also should wash the feet of one another. For I set the pattern for you, that just as I did to you, you should also do. Most truly I say to you, a slave is not greater than his master, nor is one who is sent greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, happy you are if you do them. This is a beautiful lesson in humbleness. We, the followers of Jesus, should not seek the glory or the first place or the best position. Thinking that we are so much important and should be served. It's upside down kingdom. People in position should serve others to take Jesus' example. We should follow Jesus by being willing to serve with humility, equality, and without partiality and with no pride. So this evening, during the Passover meal, Jesus taught his disciples a lesson in humility by washing their feet. Then Jesus quoted from Psalm 41.9. It's David's prophetic words. The man at peace with me, one whom I trusted, who was eating my bread, has lifted his heel against me. Then he explains, one of you will betray me. So the disciples look at one another. And each of them asks, Lord, it's not I, is it? Even Judas Iscariot does the same thing. Peter urges John, who is next to Jesus at the table, to find out who is it. So John leans close to Jesus and asks, Lord, who is it? Jesus answers, it is the one to whom I will give the piece of bread that I dip. So Jesus dipping some bread in a dish on the table, Jesus hands it to Judas, saying, The Son of Man is going away, just as it is written about him. But woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And Satan then enters Judas. Let me read in the Bible from John chapter 13, verses 27 to 30. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, what you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. Verse 30, as soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Then again, at the Passover meal, Jesus takes a loaf, says a prayer of thanks, breaks it, and gives it to his disciples to eat. He says, this means my body, which is to be given in your behalf. Keep doing this in remembrance of me. The piece of bread is passed around and the disciples eat of it. Now Jesus takes a cup of wine, says a prayer of thanks over it and passes it to them. Each drinks from the cup about which Jesus says, this cup means the new covenant by virtue of my blood 
which is to be poured out in your behalf. Then Jesus arranges for a memorial of his death, even more so than did the Passover lamb for the Jews. This highlights the true liberation for someone, for a lamb to be sacrificed, the blood for the price of freedom. All of these are emblems and symbols of Jesus' death. And the disciples did not get it yet. And during all of that that is happening on the Passover meal, remember that the chief priests and the older men of the people are not remaining quiet. They want to catch Jesus, but they don't want to do it during the festival because of the crowds. So they're waiting for the Passover meal to finish. And they gather in the courtyard of the high priest, the Caiaphas house. Why? They are upset because Jesus has been exposing them. And Jesus has been changing the statico. And the high priest is so upset and mad because no one can oppose him. Now all of them gather together to conspire against Jesus, to seize Jesus by deceit and to kill him. How? When will they do it? Not at the festival so that there may not be an uproar among the people. They are all in fear because Jesus have favor with so many people. In the meanwhile, guess what happens? After the Passover meal, they receive a visitor. To their surprise, it is one of Jesus' disciples, Judas Iscariot. Satan has implanted in him the idea of betraying his rabbi. Judas asks them, what will you give me to betray him to you? They agree to give him silver money. Jesus asking how much? They gladly will give him 30 silver pieces. You know why? 30 silver pieces. Because the price of a slave is 30 shekels. The religious leaders thus show disgrace for Jesus, that he is of little value. Judas now starts looking for a good opportunity to betray him without a crowd around him. So Jesus and his disciples, after finishing the meal, of course they will leave to the Garden of Gethsemane. We know it was a late evening. Passover meal can take, as I said, a few hours. And let us say now it's around 9, 10 p.m. in the evening when Jesus and three of his disciples arrived at the Garden of Gethsemane. So I tell my group, let us all walk from the upper room here, Mount Zion, to the Garden of Gethsemane through the Kidron Valley. All the group is present at the Garden of Gethsemane, and I want to tell you it took us around 20 minutes to walk from Mount Zion, the upper room, to the garden. And you have to understand, everything is connected and everything is a walking distance for Jesus. And then after the garden, we're going to walk all the way back to the house of 
Caiaphas the high priest to the Peter and Galicanto church. And from there also we can continue walking all the way to the Praetorium, to Herod's palace at Jaffa Gate area. So everything is within walking distance. And in the West, everything for you is big and large. No, the last week of Jesus in Jerusalem, he will done it all walking. Even we are talking about today, Thursday, and it's late and it's dark midnight at the garden. So let us remember it's Thursday night, April 2nd, 33 AD. So Jesus took three disciples with him and then he started to get really sad. He told the three disciples, Peter, John and James, to watch out for him. He went a little further away from them, fell to his face and prayed. When he returned to the disciples, he found them asleep. Probably the cups of wine made them asleep after a big meal. And they did not understand what going to happen next. Then Jesus woke them up, told them to pray to resist temptation. Then he left them again to go and pray. He did this three times and every time the disciples were asleep. The last time he told them that his time was about to come and his betrayal was at hand he was coming soon they did not realize the importance of that moment even it did not cross their minds that jesus will be surrendered this moment and here it's past midnight and judas is leading a large crowd of chief priests and pharisees and armed roman soldiers with military commanders seeking to find Jesus. In addition to the weapons, they are carrying lamps and torches, so determined to find and catch Jesus. And by the way, from the Garden of Gethsemane, especially at night, Jesus would see from a distance the army is approaching towards him. And he could run away easily from his destiny one block from the mountain is the desert and this is where everyone ran away from paying taxes to the romans but he chose to stay and surrender himself to the will of his father to save humanity jesus was willing to be arrested he was submitting completely to the will of the father here at the Garden of Gethsemane. And by the way, the word Gethsemane comes from the Hebrew and Aramaic. In Hebrew, Gat Shmanim. Gat means press, Shmanim means olive or oil. So the oil press. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus was so much pressured, so much crushed, like a piece of olives. The more an olive is crushed, the more oil it gives. So Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane is like a piece of olive. He was so much pressed. The more you are crushed, the more you are pressed in your life, 
the more anointed you get. Don't run away when it's very hard. Because if you run away, you're going to lose your destiny. When it's very hard and you are pressured and crushed, remember Jesus at the Garden of Gethsemane. Hold on more. The more you hold on, the more it's hard, the more anointed you get, the more you will fulfill God's plans in your life. It's all about endurance in the Middle Eastern way of thinking. Suffering is part of our life. We have to face it and not to run away from it. And this is our Christian walk. So remember, if you crushed in your ministry, it's fine. You will be shaped, you will change, you'll be transformed to do the will of the Father in your life, like what Jesus has done exactly at the Garden of Gethsemane. And you have to understand the most resilient part of an olive is its pit. If you have been crushed to the core, the pit is like the core of your being. I'm not saying that you wake up in a like bad mood this morning or I'm not saying that uh, you're being crushed because you heard bad news. No, I'm talking about serious crushing. I'm talking about uh, betrayal. I'm talking about like how Jesus Judas betrayed him. We're talking about like divorce. We're talking about serious diseases. So when you are crushed to your core, this is the divine moment when your destiny is released if you don't run away. God knows what kind of pressure and how much is right for you. Commit yourself to him and just wait. Wait just a little longer. Crushing is the divine process that can, if you will let it to happen, that allow the Holy Spirit to instill his presence powerfully in your life and releases your calling in ministry. Now Judas leads the procession to the Mount of Olives, to the garden. He feels sure that he knows where to find Jesus. Because during the past week, as Jesus and the disciples traveled back and forth between Bethany and Jerusalem, they often stopped at the Garden of Gethsemane in the Mount of Olives. And remember now it's night and Jesus may be in the shadows of the olive trees in the garden. So how will the soldiers who may not have seen Jesus before, identify him. Judas says, whoever it is I kiss, he is the one, take him into custody and lead him away under guard. So here is Judas, sees Jesus with his disciples and he goes straight directly up to him. Greetings, Rabbi, Judas says. And he kisses Jesus very tenderly. Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? And by the way, kissing is not on the cheek like what you think in the West. It is kissing on the hands of your rabbi. That is the culture. Kissing the hand is a sign of respect. 
And here Judas, in his mind, culturally, he's telling Jesus, please forgive me. And this is the moment Judas will feel so guilty. Let me stretch you more a little bit. Maybe Judas, in his mind, kissing his rabbi, is saying again, forgive me, Jesus. And this is because of that guilt he committed suicide that night, not far from the Garden of Gethsemane, in the Hinnom Valley. After Judas revealed to the crowds Jesus, Jesus now steps into the light of the torches and the lamps and asks, Whom are you looking for? From the crowds comes the answer, Jesus the Nazarene. Jesus says, I am he. Not knowing what to expect, the men fall to the ground. Rather than seizing the moment to run away in the night, Jesus again asks whom they are seeking when they again say, Jesus the Nazarene. He calmly continues, I told you that I am he. So if you are looking for me, let these men go. Even at this crucial moment, Jesus said, let these men go. He do not want to lose any single disciple. Jesus has kept his faithful disciples and not one has been lost except the son of destruction, Judas. Jesus asks that his loyal followers to be let go, to be free. As the soldiers stand and move towards Jesus, the disciples realized what is happening. It's only now the disciples is realizing what's going on. Look, they said, Lord, should we strike with a sword? Before Jesus replied, Peter grips one of the two swords that the disciples have at hand. He attacks someone called Malachos, a slave of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. And by the way, it's not a sword like you imagine in your mind. The correct translation would be a dagger, not to kill, but to defile the person in front of you. And little background about Malachus. He is the servant of a Jewish high priest, Caiaphas. In fact, Malachus takes pride in being a servant to the most powerful Jew in Jerusalem, Caiaphas the high priest. When he ventures out of the temple into Jerusalem, people who know of him treat him with respect. His special talent is listening, is hearing as a ruling high priest in an intensely political environment, Caiaphas has many enemies. Malachos is indeed his ear in the city. He is his assistant, maybe his second hand or his right hand. And Peter is so upset from the Jewish high priest and by their what happened. So he cut the ear of his servant Malachos. So this is a sign to send to the high priest. We are aware what you are planning for Caiaphas. Malachos is really struck. And imagine with me, blood is gushing from his head. 
the blade the dragger has sliced his ear away he is in shock and full of pain he holds his hand to stop the bleeding and drops to one knee down the ground blood is pouring down even reaching his neck drenching his clock he begins to shake blackness is engulfing him and suddenly he feels warmth pain ceases and the flashly light of the torches reappears he is feeling warmth coming to him jesus is kneeling before him and his right hand is covering his wound all that malachos can see is that jesus eyes filled with love gentleness and this incident has melted his heart and changed his life now jesus asked the crowd did you come out to arrest me with swords and clubs as against a robber day after day i used to sit in the temple teaching and yet you did not take me into custody but all of this has taken place for the writings of the prophets to be fulfilled the soldier band, the military commander, and the officers of the Jews seized Jesus and bind him. Seeing this, the disciples ran away. However, a certain young man, perhaps the disciple Mark, remains among the crowd so as to follow Jesus. This young man is recognized and the crowd attempts to seize him, which forces him to leave behind his linen garment as he gets away. And imagine with me, it's like now after midnight, maybe 12.30, 1 o'clock in the morning, Friday. This will be a long day for Jesus that was captured by the Romans. And he walks from the Garden of Gethsemane with the army, with the soldiers, all the way to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. So let us walk again up from the Garden of Gethsemane to the house of the high priest Caiaphas. All the group arrived to what used to be the high priest's house, today known as St. Peter in Gallicanto Church. So there is a church constructed on top of the high priest's house. And it is one of the most beautiful churches in Jerusalem on the eastern side of Mount Zion. Let me give you a little bit historical background about this location. First, a Byzantine church was built in 457 AD and it was destroyed completely in 1010 and rebuilt by the Crusaders in 1102 AD. The church was in ruins again in 1320 and rebuilt in 1931 managed by the Assumptionist Catholic French Father's Order. So we can say it's a modern church. On its roof, there's a golden rooster stands atop a black cross, which recalls Christ's prophecy that Peter would deny him three times before the cock crows. So in Latin, Gallicanto stands for Cook's Crow, Galli Canto. So as a reminder, it's Friday, 3rd of April, 
33 AD. Let us say early morning around 1 AM. We are aware from scripture that Jesus meets twice with Pontius Pilatus, the governor, once at night and once in the early morning. Scholars are not sure where the meeting happened. According to the New Testament, it says Pilate's palace. But where does that palace location is? Some say it's the Antonia Fortress. That have been the tradition for so many years. But today, because of recent excavations, we know where do Pontius Pilatus come. He comes to the palace of Herod. And the palace of Herod is located in Jaffa Gate. Now, most scholars agreeing today because of the recent excavations under the police station in Jaffa Gate, they found what we, the Bible called the Praetorium. It's a large area in a palace. And it's believed today that might be the location where Jesus went to meet Pontius Pilatus or where the judgment of Jesus took place and the beginning of the stations of the cross and the good Friday. But back to our point. There are three important figures from the New Testament we need to understand about in order to understand more the trial story of Jesus. Number one was Caiaphas, the high priest. You have to understand that the most important concern of the high priest is that the Jewish nation does not lose its court system. The court system is called the Sinhadrin. It was the supreme religious court system in the land of Israel during the time of the second temple period which is Jesus' time. It's an assembly of 71 sages who met in the chamber of hewn stones at the entrance of the temple of Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin met daily during the daytime and did not meet on the Sabbath, did not meet during the festivals like the Passover. So the Jewish court could not meet with Jesus. There was not enough time. And according to Jewish law, there must be 24 hours between arrest and judgment. But Jesus is tried the next morning in according with Roman law and not Jewish law. Now there are six Jewish religious concerns. Number one concern, does Jesus comply with the law of Moses? Look what's mentioned in Matthew chapter 5. Say not that I came to destroy the law. I came to fulfill the law. The rabbis understood that Jesus was a believing and practicing Jew. Number two concern. Is Jesus teaching people to break the Sabbath? In John chapter 6, Jesus tells a man by the pools of Bethesda to get up and move. And it was Sabbath. Some Pharisees complained that Jesus did this on the Sabbath day. But, these were members of the Shammai strict school. There is Hillel followers that did not care and there is Shammai followers of the law. So Jesus never told people to break the Sabbath according to the Hillel followers. Number three, how was Jesus healing people? 
The rabbis feared that Jesus might have aligned himself with some evil spirits or powers. Even in Jewish tradition, Jesus is remembered for his healing power. The question was, what was the source that Jesus had? Another concern for the Jews, the fourth concern, was Jesus against the temple? This is a very important point. Remember, Jesus turned the tables in the temple. And we have to remember that the people have a love and hate relationship with their temples. They love what it represents, but hate the politics that interferes with it. Concern number five to the Jewish court, the Sanhedrin, has Jesus spoken out against the name of God? Blasphemy? Did Jesus specifically speak against God or he spoke against God's appointed religious leaders? Some people with religious authority confuses their work with God's authority. Anyway, concern number six. Is Jesus a false messiah? If he is a messiah, then there is greater authority. But if he isn't, then he is claiming a power, not his own. If Jesus' death had been carried out by the Sanhedrin, it would have been stoning him to death, taking him up to a hill and throwing him from the top of the hill and then stone him, but not death by crucifixion. The Jews could have put Jesus to death, but they needed a religious reason. Jewish leaders don't want to make themselves more unpopular by putting Jesus to death. But if they could prove that Jesus had committed a civil offense, then Jesus would pass into Roman legal jurisdiction. And this is what happened. So let's talk now about the second important figure in the trial of Jesus, which is Herod Antipas. And we know that in the book of Luke, it's mentioned that Herod Antipas and Pilate became friends. We read in the book of Josephus Flavius, he writes about how Pontius Pilatus often invited Herod Antipas to his party in Caesarea. You know, Caesarea was the seat of the king. And Herod Antipas did not like to go and generally just sent his apologies for not being able to make it. He said, I rule over religious Jews and they wouldn't like it. When Jesus is sent to Herod Antipas, he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't want to anger the Jews who are following Jesus, but doesn't want to make Rome also mad. So Antipas sends Jesus back to the governor Pilate with his fingers crossed hoping that Pilate will take care of the situation. That way Antipas stays clean. Once Pilate decided to crucify Jesus, Herod Antipas is so grateful that the matter has been taken care of that he doesn't want to anger his friends. So next time Antipas doesn't dare miss a party invited by the governor. The two men become friends. So this is like a proof from Josephus Flavius 
that the Romans crucified Jesus. And the most, the third important figure in the trial is Pontius Pilatus. And we know that Pontius Pilatus ruled in Palestine from 26 to 36 AD. Some people say that the only reason that Pilate crucified Jesus was because he was afraid of the Jews. This is a wrong reason. According to Josephus Flavius, we know some important facts about Pontius Pilatus. Let me tell you about it. In 26 AD, there was a marsh flags from Caesarea all the way to Jerusalem. In the first week Pontius Pilatus took office, he marched to Jerusalem at night with flags bearing the names of the pagan gods. Then he placed one flag at each street corner in the city. Why did he do this? To provoke and make the Jews angry. Josephus says that when the Jews saw what he had done, they gathered a group of 5,000 people to go to Caesarea to tell Pilate to take down the flags. They wanted to do a showdown. Pilate says, go back to Jerusalem or I will cut off your heads. Jews lie down in the streets of Caesarea and say, we won't leave until you take down the flags. Pilate doesn't want to kill 5,000 Jews, so he takes them down. But Pilate is waiting to get even. And look what he done again. He marched with shields to Jerusalem. And to get even, Pilate marched at night and placed them on the Tower of David, Jaffa Gate. Then he dedicated them to Emperor Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius at that time, as the God. And 5,000 Jews again gathered and went to Caesarea and said to the governor, Pilate, take down the shields. Pilate said something like, oh, the shields bother you too? Okay, I'll take them down. Oh, but wait, I dedicated them to Tiberius, Caesar Tiberius. I can't take them down. So Jews went all the way to Rome, got a letter from the Caesar himself to take down the shields. And several months later, they were taken down. Look what the third thing Pontius Pilatus had done. He had no respect or regard for the temple of Jerusalem. And in the book of Luke, he writes about how Pilate did not respect at all the holy temple or the sacrifices that were offered there. And we know that Pilate used money from the holy temple to build a Roman aqueduct Maybe the high priest Caiaphas gave Pilate the money. But the New Testament says that Pilate used the money. So there was so much corruption happening between the governor, Pontius Pilatus, and even the high priest. And look what Pilate made the Jewish priests line up every morning and night to get and return their temple robes. He was the only procurator to do this. He tried to reinforce the idea that Jews were beneath the Romans, unless you become corrupt. This is why it's so problematic to claim that Pilate also killed Jesus because he wanted to please the Jews. He never 
before showed any desire at all to please the Jews unless they become corrupt. So that can be a corrupted judgments. According to the Philo of Alexandria, a famous Roman historian, Pilate judged his cases based on how much money was received under the table. So Pilate is so bad. This is why Luke records three times in Luke and the book of Acts that Pilate said, I find no fault in him, Jesus. Luke didn't want to cause problems with the Roman Empire, so he wrote what they would have wanted him to have written. But he also wrote that Pilate scourged Jesus so that careful readers would understand that Pilate didn't care about Jesus, that he could have let him go, but he didn't. So, general ignorance and misunderstanding about the role the Jews played in the trial of Jesus has led to centuries of Christian hatred of the Jews. And that was totally misunderstood. Let me explain more. To understand more the trial of Jesus, let us more understand the Roman civil perspective and concerns. The main concerns of the Romans is Jesus forbidding people from paying taxes to Rome? Is Jesus a zealot? Because in those days, the zealots didn't want to pay taxes to the Romans because they saw the empire as not legitimate. Remember, Jesus had turned the tables in the temple and is, to the Roman mindset, is Jesus a rebel? Is he a zealot? Is he against Rome? Is Jesus planning to overthrow the government and install himself as a king? And remember the plaque on Jesus' cross reads, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. So the Romans feared him. So in the end, Jesus' death had nothing to do with the Sanhedrin but to do with the Romans' fear of the zealots are called robbers or thieves. Remember the Bible says that Jesus was crucified between two thieves? And actually, there are not only thieves. The more precise, he was crucified between two zealots because the zealots were against the Roman government. And while the trial of Jesus was taking place in the courtyard, of the house of Caiaphas, the high priest, there was Peter waiting to find out what was going to happen. But while Peter was waiting, some people in the crowd recognized him as having been with Jesus. Apparently, overcome by fear, Peter denied that he even knew Jesus. Not just once or twice, but three times. Let me read for you from scripture from Matthew 26 69 to 74 now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him you also were with Jesus of Galilee she said but he denied it before them all I don't know what you're talking about he said then he went out to the gateway where another girl saw him and said to the people there 
This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them, for your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses on himself, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. This was perhaps the worst night in Jesus' life, but also probably the worst night in Peter's life as well. When Peter realized what he had done, he went outside and wept bitterly. And look, this is the same Peter just a few hours earlier at the Passover dinner. Look what he said. Even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you, Jesus. But Jesus knew what Peter was going to do. And mercifully, he told Peter ahead of time, speaking words of restoration to Peter, even before he denied Jesus. Here is what Jesus said to Peter, also known by Simon, by the way. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen in your brothers. Jesus knew that all the disciples would fall away from him that night, including Peter. But Jesus came to Peter specifically to let him know that he was praying for him, that his faith wouldn't fail. Then he encouraged Peter to strengthen his brothers. I will tell my group with all this background, let us walk together to the dungeon, which is called also Jesus' prison, to the cell, where according to tradition, they probably placed Jesus for a few hours before taking him to judgment. As you see, there is a guard room opposite to the dungeon and there is a small window from the guard room serves as a hall or a window for a guard standing on a stone block to watch the criminal inside this dungeon and the only access to the dungeon was through a shaft from above so the prisoner would have been lowered by means of ropes or a harness all the way down to the bottom. And in this dungeon, Jesus would have held for the night after enduring the mock trial by the high priest and before being led in chains to Pilate the next day, Friday. This is a dug out dark and gloomy place where Jesus spent the night before he was crucified. This sobering place has become known as what we call Christ's prison. We will walk down through a narrow staircase. And this staircase is not original. It was recently built for pilgrims in order to reach the dungeon down. Usually this is a very crowded place. And we have to wait for our turn. And during waiting, I'll hear American groups ahead of us singing the spiritual hymn, Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Were you there when they crucified my Lord? 
Oh, sometimes it causes me to tremble, tremble, tremble. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Their voices singing this worship song, it's like heavenly. Now it's the turn of my group to be down. And when all the group gathers, I will ask from the pastor to read from Psalm 88. There's a podium standing in the room. And on this podium, there is Psalm 88 with so many languages. And this is a psalm of prayer for help in despair. And I will ask the pastor again to read from it with total silence from all the group. I will read it for you. O Lord, God of my salvation, when at night I cry out in your presence, let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to shore. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am like those who have no help, like those forsaken among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depth of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a thing of horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call on you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the shades rise up to praise you? Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in abandon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your saving help in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry out to you. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast me off? Why do you hide your face from me? Wretched and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am desperate. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dread assaults destroyed me. They surround me like a flood all day long. From all sides they close in on me. You have caused friends and neighbors to shun me. My companions are in darkness. So imagine with me. Already past midnight, the whole council resolved to lock Jesus in the dungeon, hidden from the sight of everyone. Rarely any light penetrates into this room. It was filled with unclean and bad smells. It was all infected. And not many people has used this room. It's only for criminals. So it hadn't been cleaned for so many years. And it's deep, deep down. And so this place became unworthy. And with all this background, 
the irony of Peter denying the Lord three times and the Lord is forgiving him despite the Lord is placed in this situation. And perhaps me and you felt like Peter. We denied Jesus so many times. And we believe he could never forgive us of what we have done. Maybe we lied. Maybe we had an affair. Maybe we betrayed our family, our friends. Maybe we lied. Or maybe we've done so many horrible things, not physically, in our minds. And I just want to remind you that despite Peter sinned, Jesus forgave him. And still, he forgive us. Jesus was willing to die for Peter and you and me, even while we were still involved in our sins. If you are wrestling with the idea of forgiveness, and whether or not God can or will forgive you of your sins, I pray today that God will show you his unsurpassing love. I pray that these words from the Bible will wash over us and I pray that we all know that if we ask God for forgiveness and we put our faith in him that he will indeed forgive us and remove our sins from as far as the east is from the west while we are standing here in this dungeon and imagine Peter's worst possible sin in his life was denying Christ. You have to understand that he repented completely. And me and you need to repent. Because still we have hope in Jesus. And all those who need a reminder that Christ can restore us, redeem us and forgive us even, even at the depth of our sins. Even when Peter denied Jesus, Jesus forgave him. Look what is written in Matthew 26, verse 75. A reminder of the power of the grace of God over human frailty and sin. For upon hearing the cock crows, Peter went out and wept bitterly. He repented broke down and wept with this memory in our minds let us remember that we have hope over sin if we repent completely from our hearts so repentance bring down the power of the holy spirit and with all this in mind jesus in darkness in his weakest place still love us and he forgive us fully and completely and want to restore us like he restored Peter fully. During this time, the spirit is so much present in the room and people are weeping and crying. And I will give the group two minutes of silence and they can manifest and cry and weep and feel free what the spirit will lead them 
most of the groups will share later that was their favorite place in Jerusalem the dungeon Jesus prison and underground the house of Caiaphas the high priest on Mount Zion